This is part two of At the Appetite Cure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg and Other Stories by Mark Twain. Section 17. At the Appetite Cure. Part 2. Thirty years ago, Heimberger went off on a long voyage in a sailing ship. There were fifteen passengers on board. The table fare was of the regulation pattern of the day. At seven in the morning, a cup of bad coffee in bed. At nine, breakfast. Bad coffee with condensed milk, soggy rolls, crackers, salt fish. At one p.m., luncheon. Cold tongue, cold ham, cold corned beef, soggy cold rolls, crackers. 5 p.m. dinner. Thick pea soup, salt fish, hot corned beef and sauerkraut, boiled pork and beans, pudding. 9 until 11 p.m. supper. Tea with condensed milk, cold tongue, cold ham, pickles, sea biscuit, pickled oysters, pickled pig's feet, grilled bones, golden buck. At the end of the first week eating had ceased. Nibbling had taken its place. The passengers came to the table, but it was partly to put in the time, and partly because the wisdom of the ages commanded them to be regular in their meals. They were tired of the coarse and monotonous fare, and took no interest in it, had no appetite for it. All day and every day they roamed the ship half-hungry, plagued by their gnawing stomachs, moody, untalkative, miserable. Among them were three confirmed dyspeptics. These became shadows in the course of three weeks. There was also a bedridden invalid. He lived on boiled rice. He could not look at the regular dishes. Now came shipwrecks and life in open boats, with the usual paucity of food. Provisions ran lower and lower. The appetites improved then. When nothing was left but raw ham, and the ration of that was down to two ounces a day per person, the appetites were perfect. At the end of fifteen days the dyspeptics, the invalid, and the most delicate ladies in the party were chewing sailor-boots in ecstasy, and only complaining because the supply of them was limited. Yet these were the same people who couldn't endure the ship's tedious corned beef, and sauerkraut, and other crudities. They were rescued by an English vessel. Within ten days the whole fifteen were in as good condition as they had been when the shipwreck occurred. "'They had suffered no damage by their adventure,' said the professor. "'Do you note that?' "'Yes. Do you note it well?' Yes, I think I do. But you don't. You hesitate. You don't rise to the importance of it. I will say it again, with emphasis. Not one of them suffered any damage. And now I begin to see. Yes, it was indeed remarkable. Nothing of the kind. It was perfectly natural. There was no reason why they should suffer damage. They were undergoing nature's appetite cure, the best and wisest in the world. Is that where you got your idea? That is where I got it. It taught those people a valuable lesson. What makes you think that? Why shouldn't it? You seem to think it taught you one. That is nothing to the point. I am not a fool. I see. Were they fools? They were human beings. Is it the same thing? Why do you ask? You know it yourself. As regards his health and the rest of the things, the average man is what his environment and his superstitions have made him and their function is to make him an ass. He can't add up three or four new circumstances together and perceive what they mean. It is beyond him. He is not capable of observing for himself. 
he has to get everything at second hand. If what are miscalled the lower animals were as silly as man is, they would all perish from the earth in a year. Those passengers learned no lesson, then? Not a sign of it. They went to their regular meals in the English ship, and pretty soon they were nibbling again, nibbling, appetiteless, disgusted with the food, moody, miserable, half-hungry, their outraged stomach cursing and swearing and whining and supplicating all day long, and in vain, for they were the stomachs of fools. Then, as I understand it, your scheme is quite simple. Don't eat until you are hungry. If the food fails to taste good, fails to satisfy you, rejoice you, comfort you, don't eat again until you are very hungry. Then it will rejoice you, and do you good, too. And I am to observe no regularity as to ours? When you are conquering a bad appetite, no. After it is conquered, regularity is no harm, so long as the appetite remains good. As soon as the appetite wavers, apply the corrective again, which is starvation, long or short according to the needs of the case. The best diet, I suppose. I mean, the wholesomest. All diets are wholesome. Some are wholesomer than others, but all the ordinary diets are wholesome enough for the people who use them. Whether the food be fine or coarse, it will taste good, and it will nourish, if a watch be kept upon the appetite, and a little starvation introduced every time it weakens. Nansen was used to fine fare, but when his meals were restricted to bear meat months at a time, he suffered no damage and no discomfort, because his appetite was kept at par through the difficulty of getting his bear meat regularly. But doctors arrange carefully considered and delicate diets for invalids. They can't help it. The invalid is full of inherited superstitions and won't starve himself. He believes it would certainly kill him. It would weaken him, wouldn't it? Nothing to hurt. Look at the invalids in our shipwreck. They lived fifteen days on pinches of raw ham, a suck at sailor-boots, and general starvation. It weakened them, but it didn't hurt them. It put them in fine shape to eat heartily of hearty food and build themselves up to a condition of robust health. But they did not know enough to profit by that. They lost their opportunity. They remained invalids. It served them right. Do you know the trick that the health resort doctors play? What is it? My system disguised. Covert starvation. Grape cure, bath cure, mud cure, it is all the same. The grape and the bath and the mud make a show and do a trifle of the work. The real work is done by the surreptitious starvation. The patient accustomed to four meals and late hours, at both ends of the day, now consider what he has to do at a health resort. He gets up at six in the morning, eats one egg, tramps up and down a promenade two hours with the other fools, eats a butterfly, slowly drinks a glass of filtered sewage that smells like a buzzard's breath, promenades another two hours but alone. If you speak to him, he says anxiously, "'My water! I am walking off my water! Please don't interrupt!' and goes stumping along again, eats a candied rose-leaf, lies at rest in the silence and solitude of his room for hours, mustn't read, mustn't smoke. The doctor comes and feels of his heart now, and his pulse, and thumps his breast and his back and his stomach, and listens for results through a penny flagellate. 
then orders the man's bath, half a degree, Raimur, cooler than yesterday. After the bath, another egg, a glass of sewage at three or four in the afternoon, and promenade solemnly with the other freaks. Dinner at six, half a doughnut and a cup of tea. Walk again. Half past eight, supper, more butterfly. At nine, to bed. Six weeks of this regimen, think of it. It starves a man out and puts him in splendid condition. It would have the same effect in London, New York, Jericho, anywhere. How long does it take to put a person in condition here? It ought to take but a day or two, but in fact it takes from one to six weeks, according to the character and mentality of the patient. How is that? Do you see that crowd of women playing football and boxing and jumping fences yonder? They have been here six or seven weeks. They were spectral poor weaklings when they came. They were accustomed to nibbling at dainties and delicacies at set hours four times a day, and they had no appetite for anything. I questioned them, and then locked them into their rooms, the frailest ones to starve nine or ten hours, the others twelve or fifteen. Before long they began to beg, and indeed they suffered a good deal. They complained of nausea, headaches, and so on. It was good to see them eat when the time was up. They could not remember when the devouring of a meal had afforded them such rapture. That was their word. Now, then, that ought to have ended their cure, but it didn't. They were free to go to any meals in the house, and they chose their accustomed four. Within a day or two I had to interfere. Their appetites were weakening. I made them knock out a meal. That set them up again. Then they resumed the four. I begged them to learn to knock out a meal themselves without waiting for me. Up to a fortnight ago they couldn't. They really hadn't manhood enough, but they were gaining it, and now I think they are safe. They drop out a meal every now and then, of their own accord. They are in fine condition now, and they might safely go home, I think. But their confidence is not quite perfect yet, so they are waiting a while. Other cases are different? Oh, yes. Sometimes a man learns the whole trick in a week, learns to regulate his appetite and keep it in perfect order, learns to drop out a meal with frequency and not mind it. But why drop the entire meal out? Why not a part of it? It's a poor device and inadequate. If the stomach doesn't call vigorously, with a shout, as you may say, it is better not to pester it, but just give it a real rest. Some people can eat more meals than others, and still thrive. There are all sorts of people and all sorts of appetites. I will show you a man presently who was accustomed to nibble at eight meals a day. It was beyond the proper gait of his appetite by two. I have got him down to six a day now, and he is all right, and enjoys life. How many meals to you affect per day? Formerly, for twenty-two years, a meal and a half. During the past two years, two and a half. Coffee and a roll at nine, luncheon at one, dinner at seven-thirty or eight. Formerly a meal and a half, that is, coffee and a roll at nine, dinner in the evening, nothing between, is that it? Yes. Why did you add a meal? It was the family's idea. They were uneasy. They thought I was killing myself. You found a meal and a half per day enough? All through the twenty-two years? Plenty. Your present poor condition is due to the extra meal. Drop it out. You are trying to eat oftener than your stomach demands. You don't gain, you lose. 
you eat less food now in a day on two and a half meals than you formerly ate on one and a half true a good deal less for in those old days my dinner was a very sizable thing put yourself on a single meal a day now dinner for a few days till you secure a good sound regular trustworthy appetite then take to your one and a half permanently and don't listen to the family any more when you have any ordinary ailment particularly of a feverish sort eat nothing at all during twenty-four hours that will cure it it will cure the stubbornest cold in the head too no cold in the head can survive twenty-four hours unmodified starvation i know it i have proved it many a time end of part two at the appetite cure and end of section seventeen of the man that corrupted hadleyburg and other stories by mark twain